Okay, we're going to read from God's Word. If you have a Bible on you, why don't you grab it, uh, or an app on your phone? If not, the words will appear behind us. We're reading this morning from John's Gospel, chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 17. That's John 13, verses 1 to 17. This is God's Word. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do, real, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but by my hands, my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. So we're running a series at Central. It kicked off last Sunday and then we carried on on Good Friday and then uh, to today and Easter Sunday. And it's a series really all about narratives that are at work in the Easter messages. So Palm Sunday was all about arrival. The king is here. The true king, the real king is here. Good Friday, we were really talking about um, the wonder of a God who's, who, who meets us where we are, who is God and yet who knows all of the suffering of what it means to be human. And now we land today on our first Sunday back in person, which I'm so glad is Easter Sunday, right? How incredible that things move and we're able to gather around the Easter story. And we're back and we're looking at a picture and the picture is that of the basin and the tile. And I wonder if you've ever thought much about how much of life revolves around etiquette, right? I wonder if you've thought about what etiquette kind of means to your everyday experience of life. So you have the usual, you know, don't speak with your mouth full kind of stuff, or no elbows on the table, or a gentleman holds the door for a lady, right? You kind of have that stuff, right? That's in there. And then you've got things like men lift the toilet seat before you go for a wee, right? Apparently put it back down again too when you're finished, right? I only learned that after I got married, right? Lift the toilet seat, right? And then there's things like, you know, the etiquette around the office fridge, that war zone where Sarah eats Darren's lunch and it's like a personal vendetta has broken out in the office, right? Don't touch it if it's not yours, all that sort of stuff that goes on. 
Or people who play ringtones on buses, right? There's etiquette about that. Or the great Christmas etiquette. Never, ever put empty wrappers back in the Quality Street 10, right? There's etiquette around everything, isn't there? Making tea. Milk must be added to tea, right? Not milk, then tea bag, then hot water. People that do that are just weird and wrong, and no, that's not okay. Or people who, repl- who hit reply all to emails. That should just be a conversation between one other person or one of the all-important life ones, that if you really must, for whatever reason, have to take all of your clothes off, Socks must come off before pants, right? That's a life rule. Everyone knows it. People that break it should be locked up. Etiquette, right? Or cues. Uh, Back when we could fly planes, I was taking a flight to London, and you're kind of standing in the queue. It was early morning. And in the queue in front of me, I can see uh, a man a bit, a bit further ahead of me. And I would say he was in his 60s. And he got to the roller table thing. And he, you know, he takes his belt off and his wallet. And he puts his things in the little basket. And as he kind of goes to bring that forward, the, the attendant says, you need to take your shoes off. So that's fine. He starts to bend down to take his shoes off. While he's doing that, Mr. Slick businessman who's behind him in the queue has already taken his shoes off. So he just simply like wakes around in front of him, okay, puts his stuff in the basket and attempts to go through the scanner, right? But he's jumped the queue, right? Not okay. And Mr. 60-year-old has not taken it too well. I then witnessed the most primary school thing you've ever seen as two grown men start bumping their trays into each other, right? And they're sitting like, doom. And then the guy looks at him and he Boom, hits his tray back, right? And this goes back and on for like about a minute before eventually Mr. Slick Businessman turns around and goes, and he's English as well, right? Turns around and goes, really mature, grow up, right? And the 60-year-old man, who you can now see steam begin to come out of his ears, right? And he's trying to get words out, okay? And you can see, and I'm like, there's going to be like an expletive comes out here, right? Eventually, the steam builds and builds and builds until eventually this guy just shouts at him, you bunker, Right? You're like, you're a grown man in an airport and you just called someone a bunker, right? Because there's etiquette, isn't there? And it's everywhere in our lives. We watched The Crown over lockdown. I don't know if you also, I don't know however many millions of people also watched The Crown, but the etiquette that is involved just to have a conversation with the Queen, it's on a whole other level, right? And I say that today because this passage really is all about etiquette. Etiquette is front and center in this passage, and it's the etiquette about feet washing. And looking at it with today's eyes, right, it's not something that maybe you're likely to have experienced in your lifetime, but for the culture of Jesus' day, it was part of everyday life. And along with it came etiquette. And it sits at this interesting point in the book of John, okay? You'll probably know the words of John 10.10 quite well when it says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And in a sense, okay, you could cut John's gospel up into a number of large blocks, okay? The first 12 chapters are in many ways taken up with the whole idea of the giving of eternal life and how Jesus is offered as the one and only source of that life, okay? That's a broad overview, but in many ways, that's what the first 12 chapters are all about. And then 13 to 17, well, they seem to revolve around John's concern for the development of that I have come that they may have life and life to the full type life, okay? And we find ourselves today right at the start of that 13th chapter. And right at the start of it is a passage about feet washing. We know in life that there's a difference between birthing a baby and raising a child. And John's heart in this account 
of the kind of the life and ministry of Jesus is that he might show us, call us, challenge us to see how the eternal life we're promised must develop into full life in the here and now. And it's life, full life that we gather around on an Easter Sunday, isn't it? We gather around the empty grave, the stone rolled away, death defeated, life with Jesus, full life. That's what we're gathering around today, isn't it? So what's really going on in the passage? Well, I think we can draw two things from it today, all right? And these two things are a picture and a pattern. We're thinking about a picture and a pattern in the passage that we have just read. First thing is a picture. And this has to be one of the iconic images of Jesus, isn't it? It has to be one of the ones that you think about whenever, you know, his actions whilst on this earth, right? That you remember them. We all remember actions like this. William Barclay says of it, few incidents in the gospel story so reveal the character of Jesus and so perfectly show his love. It's one of the iconic Jesus images. This is him in full color for all of us to see. I'm always struck, you know, by the Easter story, having made the walk from Palm Sunday and the celebration of him as the coming king, okay? Like, just for a moment, you think that the world gets it, don't you? You're like, yes, finally, they get it. They see Jesus for who he is. And when you think about all of Jesus and all of what he could have been and could have done, all of that power, all of that majesty, all of that beauty, all of that justice, all of that life, nothing is impossible for him. And when you think about all that he could have been and done, and then just look at the picture and what he did. When you think about all he could have been and done, and then look at what he did on his knees, at the feet of his disciples, washing feet. In a sense, this picture is beginning and end. This is the beginning of the long, slow road to the cross and to the resurrection. The passage says that. And the end, the climax, the goal of everything that Jesus has been up to. And it starts with a fairly densely packed first couple of verses, okay? These are verses 1 to 3. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Okay, first thing that you notice is it's the Passover, right? It's right there in the first line. And with John, if he mentions something like a Jewish festival, it's because he wants us to understand that Jesus is applying it to himself. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the Passover. You want to understand the Passover? Look at me. Passover was the greatest of festivals in that time. And John was linking Jesus to the great festival from the very start of John's gospel, right? So he's the Passover lamb in chapter 1. He spoke at Passover uh, of the temple being destroyed and rebuilt, meaning his own body. That was in chapter 2. He fed crowds at Passover time. He spoke of them feeding on his body and blood. That was chapter 6. And now... John is explaining what the meal was all about and pointing to the events that are about to come. The first thing is Passover. The second thing is Jesus knew the hour had come. Jesus knew he was on the road to the cross now. 
But it's not simply time, just time for Jesus to die, okay? Sometimes we think of that whenever we hear those words. But that's not all that that means. That's obviously part of it, but it's so much more. The point is, uh, is that it's being time to go to the Father is what it says. And that's different, right? That actually meant the cross, the resurrection, time with his disciples, and only then did he go to be with the Father again. It was one journey but it was one that nobody expected. Brian Zand wrote this, the cross was not defeat undone by the resurrection. The cross was a victory revealed by the resurrection. Jesus had a road to go and it didn't end at the cross. And thirdly, we have Judas. And right as we're watching love being portrayed in the life of Jesus, we're also watching love being betrayed. Evil somehow is seeping into the cracks of someone's life, right, as love is going to the very limits. Isn't it like that in our lives so often? That the enemy's work is done in whispers. Often as God's work and the good and the love that has been displayed and has been poured out for you in your life is working in your life, isn't it how it is that so often the devil works in the whisper behind the scenes? Says things like, you aren't good enough. You never were, and you never will be. He says things like, you're not good enough for that new job, right, as you start that new job. So says things like, it'll never last when somebody tells you that they love you and a relationship is blossoming. Says things like, it's not enough when you look at your bank balance. You aren't enough when you become a dad, and it didn't really happen when the Lord has just spoken to you. Isn't that how he works? In the whisper. And the little voice that niggles and undermines and tries to undo the things Jesus has been doing in your life. N.T. Wright says this in verse 3. We see the full picture. The Word who was with God, the Word was God, became flesh. He laid those sad clothes of glory and he put on human nature in order to wash our feet. And this is just it, Right? It's not just that God is so great, but he kind of had to go to the cross, right? It's not that he's amazing, and, but nevertheless, he has to do it. It's that because he is so great, so good, that precisely he had to go to the cross. It's precisely because he's so great that he might be interested in you, interested enough to do what he did on Good Friday. It's as if this line is spoken over every single one of us, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. To the end. And then we get to the feet washing, right? So we've come through those first verses and we finally get to the act itself. And this is what it says. So he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And this is astonishing, right? What's happening here is absolutely astonishing. Donald Hankey was a soldier in World War I. And wrote a number of books around that time, but he was perhaps most famous for an essay that he wrote that was called The Beloved Captain. And in that essay, he wrote about a captain who had uh, been in charge of a unit that he was in for a short time. And, and this is what he wrote about that captain. 
We all knew instinctively that he was our superior, a man of finer fiber than ourselves, a toff in his own right. I suppose that's why he could be so humble without the loss of dignity, for he was humble too, if that is the right word, and I think it is. No trouble of ours was too small for him to attend to. When we started root marches, for instance, and our feet were blistered and sore, as they often were at first, you would have thought that they were his own feet from the trouble he took. Of course, after the march, there was always an inspection of feet. That is the routine. But with him, it was no mere routine. He came into our room. And if anyone had a sore foot, he would kneel down on the floor and look at it as carefully as if he had been a doctor. Then he would prescribe and the remedies were ready at hand, being borne by a sergeant. If a blister had to be lanced, he would very likely lance it himself there and then so as to make sure it was done with a clean needle and that no dirt was allowed to get in. There was no affectation about this, no striving after effect. It was simply that he felt that our feet were pretty important and that he knew that we were pretty careless. So he thought it best at the start to see to the matter himself. He thought our feet were pretty important and he thought that we were pretty careless. So he thought it best to see to the matter himself. And that's it. That's what's really going on here. That's what's really happened on the Good Friday. That's the picture of who Jesus really is and what he really did at Easter time. But then we get to Peter, okay? And thank goodness for Peter. Peter, if we're honest, is all of us, isn't he? Very often in the gospel accounts, you read Peter and you're like, oh, thank goodness Peter says it because that's how I feel a lot of the time, okay? Peter is all of us in many ways. And this is what he says. He came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Point here is Peter can't take it, can he? He's looking at his master. He's looking at his Lord, his teacher, his rabbi, as they would have called it in those days. He's seen him do and speak miraculous things, astonishing things. And he can't stand that he's going to wash his feet. So the first thing he does is he just blank refuses. He's like, no, you will never wash my feet. I will never let you do that. But then Jesus talks back to him. And, and so he responds. He tells him to wash all of him next, right? But Jesus says, no. Because there was a custom at that time that if you were going to a feast, you had a bath before you went to the feast, okay? Stands to reason. So if you already had a bath, you don't need me to wash all of you. You're already clean. Only your feet need washed. In other words, this is the only way. If this doesn't happen, there is no other way. And at the heart of this incident, at the heart of the Easter message is this reality. That as we sit here today on Resurrection Sunday, gathering around the life that is poured into the world as Jesus is raised from the dead, right? As we sit here on the Sunday, we will never get it if we don't get what happened on the Friday. 
If we don't get the cross, if we don't get that the cross was the only way, even though sometimes we struggle just to look at it. Nubes was on worship on Friday night and he sang, he sang how deep the Father's love for us. And there's that line where it says, you know, the Father turned his face away. And sometimes that's all of us too. When we look at the cross, we can't bear to look, but we have to look because we have to get it. We have to get it. We have to encounter the depths of just what Jesus has done for us because if we don't, We'll never get the joy of what the Sunday means. If we don't get that in this moment, as Jesus does something that no one else around the table was prepared to do, Jesus is about to do something at the cross that nobody else could do. If we don't get Friday, we'll never get the gift of the Sunday. It's a bit like the moment that we're in, right? And in the generations that are ahead, okay, they will never get the simple joy that all of you are going to experience in a number, well, who knows how long's time, but anyway, all of you are going to experience in a period of time when you get a haircut, right? The joy of like walking out of that hairdresser, you know, feeling great about your life, right? I've never done that before, but anyway, right? The joy of walking out of a hairdresser. They're not going to get it because they haven't lived through this, have they? The joy of a hug from someone you love, the joy of family gatherings, the joy of a full pub on a Friday night with your friends, the joy of holidays, the joy of friends in your own home, the joy of how good it will be to sing at the top of my lungs without a mask on and any concern for a virus that may or may not do harm to other people. They won't get it because they haven't known this, will they? And that's the Friday and the Sunday. We won't get it. We won't get the gift of the life that is poured out for us today. We'll never understand with wonder what Jesus did at the resurrection if we don't come to terms with the cross. This is a picture of the intimacy and the humility and the getting down to our level of the cross and the road of the cross that led to the resurrection. It's a picture we need to get. We need to stare long and hard at if we're ever gonna fully grasp the hope that we gather around and celebrate today. First thing is it's a picture. But the second thing is that it's a pattern. Let's read those verses uh, from 12 to 17 again. When, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Feet are not exactly everyone's cup of tea, are they? I was on a youth weekend at one point and uh, I was a youth leader. One of the young people was sat in the row in front of me. I didn't have any shoes on or socks on and I had put my feet up on the seat in front and everything was going great for her and then she turned around to discover two bare feet, you know, about six inches from the side of her head and she just went white, right? She just was horrified at the fact that there were feet that close to her head. The term is podophobia. 
It is the fear of feet. And apparently, it affects one in a thousand people. I don't really get it, right? I don't have any issue with feet, right? They're just feet. They're not really very exciting, but equally, they're not really horrifying either, are they? They're just kind of there. They just exist, don't they? Unless, of course, they are these feet. Stare long and hard at this. This is Louise Hollis, and the combined length of her toenails is 220.98 centimeters. It is the official Guinness World Record. Apparently, also, just as a little side note, you know, just because it's not weird or anything, she keeps all her broken ones. I mean, where? What do you do with that? Like a wee weird Tupperware somewhere in the house with broken toenails? I mean, it's not weird at all. I really like how she's like painted them just to make it less weird and really inconspicuous, right? I don't have a fear of fate, but I am not going near those ones, right? And in Jesus' day, okay, the, things, the thing is that shoes were very different than they are today. They were basic sandals, just a leather sole with strings that attached them to your feet. And in a day when you walked everywhere, dirt and dusty roads, roads that animals use, so yes, that meant animal poo, right? Poo you sometimes walked through. Your feet spoke of the road that you'd walked. And they'd be washed when you got to your venue. And as we get to this stage of the passage, okay, there's a little bit of context going on here. You see in Luke's account of the same meal in Luke 22, he recounts how the disciples had got into an argument with one another. He wrote this, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. Right there, as Jesus is now on the road to the cross, the disciples are busy arguing about who's the best. And maybe that's one of the reasons, maybe that's one of the things that was in Jesus' mind as he gets up from his meal, as he puts a towel around his waist, and as he begins to wash their feet, and now he teaches on it. Why? Because it was unthinkable. What Jesus did was unthinkable. A wife might wash a husband's feet. Children might wash their father's feet. A disciple might wash a master's. But a master would never wash the feet of his followers. It was intimate, right? I mean, washing between someone's toes is an intimate thing, isn't it? I don't see any volunteers in here to start washing each other's feet this morning. It's intimate, isn't it? Washing feet should be a mundane thing, but in reality, of course it's not. It's intimate. I always think that when you go to the hairdressers, right? I know I'm talking about hairdressers. Sorry if I'm like, you know, taunting you. I haven't been, obviously. So it's not as if I'm like, I went to the hairdressers. I haven't. But when you go to the hairdressers and and they wash your hair, I always think that like, that's quite an intimate thing. And yes, I have definitely fallen asleep in the chair before when they've been washing my hair. I don't know if it was a man or a woman, but I definitely fell asleep. In fairness, Elle had just been born, I was very tired and all of that stuff, but I fell asleep. It's an intimate thing, isn't it? And washing feet was intimate work, but it was also dirty work. And it was mostly the work of a slave or a servant. According to Jewish tradition, for example, a Jewish servant wouldn't wash a Jewish person's feet. That was the work of a Gentile servant. There was etiquette. And there's that word again. And it was the disciples' job to make sure that everything was sorted for their master. That was kind of generally what happened. They were meant to make sure that everything was in place. That was what they were meant to do. But even then, they didn't dream of doing it. 
And so sitting around the table, there must have been this kind of period of embarrassment as the disciples who are talking with one another, who knows if they're still arguing about who's the greatest, they're talking amongst themselves, right? And they realize that there's nobody there to wash the feet. And they're going to be embarrassed about it because that's meant to be their job. Who's going to wash the master's feet? No one's there. They're going to feel embarrassed. And yet none of them was prepared to do it. And you can almost feel it when you read the passage, like watching Jesus prepare to do it. Your master kind of get up from where he is and you're talking and now you begin to talk under your breath. Like, what's, what's, what's he doing? He's, he's, not, he's not going to do it, is he? He is. No way. And Peter's the only one to speak up and say something. But even then, here's the thing, nobody moves. Peter says it, but nobody moves. Not one of them gets up to do anything. Nobody takes the basin and the towel themselves. None of them, not one of them. They were appalled at Jesus needing to do it, but they weren't prepared to do anything about it. They were appalled, but not prepared to do anything about it. How much is that that us as we look at the needs of the world in which we live? As you look at hurts, as you look at suffering, as you look at even things that might be in your circle of friends or family or workplace, stuff that you know is going on, appalled, but not prepared to do anything about it. Appalled by what we see, but not prepared to change it. Jesus says he's the example. Verse 15, I've set you an example that you might do as I have done for you. Another way to translate the word example is pattern, okay? A picture showing us how something should be done, a tracing for us to follow and fill in all the fine details, kind of like needlepoint. You know people that do those like needlepoint kind of tapestry type things, right? You get a guide, but it's on you to fill in the detail. How can it be? That Jesus is the closest to God out of anyone who has ever lived. And yet just look at his life and how it brought him closer to people than anybody else. And now he calls us to follow the pattern. The thing is that we don't often, do we? If we're honest with ourselves, too often we're too proud, aren't we? Jesus is calling us to the intimacy of each other's feet, the world's feet. But so often we're not humble enough to do it. It's so easy to fall for the temptation to talk about Jesus as Lord and the kingdom and all of those kind of big statements and phrases that we use in the church. But what we really mean is that we, his servants, want to be rulers of our own little provinces in his kingdom where we're in control, where we set the tone, where we set the etiquette for what we do and are and be in our lives. Jesus is calling us to look away from himself. The Easter message, the basin and the towel, is not just about the picture of what Jesus did. It's about the pattern that he tries to set our lives upon. N.T. Wright says of this, where the world's needs and our vocation meet is where we ought to be and often where he is. The blessing is in the doing, not the thinking about, not the knowing about. The blessing is in the doing. And humility is the soil in which the graces of God grow. 
It's all about how humble we are. Easter Sunday is a call not just to look at the picture of what God has done, to grasp it in order to take a hold of the hope of the resurrection Sunday that we're in now. It's also a pattern to get going with the cause of Jesus Christ in our time, humbly, intimately, casting our own glory aside. And it's as if in this moment of time, in the world in which we live, it's almost like we've got this clean slate, this fresh opportunity to be Jesus' hands and feet in the world in which we live all over again. As the world opens up, we get to be a people who will humbly, intimately, try to follow the pattern that he himself set. Just as we wrap up this morning, and I hand over to Jamie, he's going to lead us in song. I guess this one's kind of a weird one, right? Normally you get to Easter Sunday and when you're around the church, there's almost this kind of massive celebration that goes on. Kids are off school, the weather's getting better, you know, we've just had our like two great days of weather before the snow rolls in next week, Right? That sort of time of year, people are buzzing and all of that, you know. But the reality is, I wanted to ask you today, how are you feeling this Easter? Because my sense is the more I am around people, the more we talk on Zoom and go for walks and begin to kind of dig into what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this season, the more I hear words like worn and tired and wearied by the year, heavy from the weight of our world, for a year. So how are you feeling this Easter? Where are you at? How's the year treated you? The relationships in your life, your work, your family environment, the home. How are you doing? How are you really doing? Because this is the day where we need to, 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 bl- to let hope blow through the caverns of our soul. The hope of today. We're so busy looking at dates that restrictions lift and freedoms come, right? You know, it's almost as if Boris or Arlene ever gives a date. You're like living for that date, right? You're, you know, whatever, whenever the next one is, 21st of June or whatever it is, it's like 21st of June, the kingdom comes, right? That's how we live our lives in this moment in this world. But this is the day that ultimately we stand with all our weight on. This is the day in our diary. This is the hope that's down the road. This is the moment that we're looking toward. This is the one that sets the tone and sets the course of our life. But it starts with getting real with our lives, doesn't it? So how are you doing today? How does Jesus need to minister to you today? What parts of your life, what parts of your soul do you need to experience resurrection, hope in today? The weary parts, the worn parts, the heavy parts, the disappointed parts, the hurting parts. Because all of us have lost and all of us have grieved. Where do you need to experience the hope of the resurrection Sunday today?